0: The toys, which basically is a series about growing up. It's about um, putting away childish things and becoming a man, becoming a man or a woman of God. Um, we don't become a man or a woman and then put away childish things. We become one by putting away childish things. And there's so many times in scriptures we're tool, told to put certain things off and to grow up in our faith. Um, and can I tell you something? It doesn't matter how long you've served Jesus. You are not mature because you've served Jesus for 60 years. You're not mature because you've served Jesus for six weeks. Your level of maturity is dependent upon how much you are seeing the kingdom and walking in it. There are people that have been attending church for 60 years that are sitting in a prison cell with the door off. And there are other people that have just been saved two days that are already outside the cell understanding the freedom and the power of God and so putting away childish things is what this series has been about and the book that we've gotten this information from is a book written by by Eugene Peterson called perseverance long obedience in the same direction if you had a chance to listen to the the last video this week from Mark Batterson on Wednesday night or on Sunday school this morning do you remember what Mark challenged us that we need to have long obedience in the same direction. What's the title of the book? Long obedience in the same direction. I wish I could take credit for putting this all together, but I didn't. I didn't realize how closely the All In series went with the series we've been in here on Sunday mornings. God is trying to get his church ready for his return. And he's trying to get a generation to rise up and take their place. And so we've been studying the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 are the Psalms of Ascent. These are the songs that the Jews sang as they traveled to Jerusalem to worship God. And the same way that they traveled physically throughout the land of Jerusalem, or Judea, to Jerusalem, traveling up to Jerusalem because it was the high point. That same way they ascended to Jerusalem, we are ascending in our relationship with God. We are pressing towards him. And so these Psalms of Ascent have been teaching us to grow. They've taught us about repentance and trust and worship and service and help. And today we're on part seven and we're going to talk about security. Security. So if you're Psalm 125, this is from the message translation. Those who trust in God... Are like Zion Mountain. Nothing can move it. A rock solid mountain that you can always depend on. Mountains encircle Jerusalem and God encircles his people. Always has and always will. The fist of the wicked will never violate what is due the righteous, provoking wrongful violence. Be good to your good people. (laughs) Be good to your good people, God. To those whose hearts are right, God will round up the backsliders, corral them the incorrigibles, with the incorrigibles. Peace over Israel. Today's kind of a dangerous day because if you fall asleep or you zone out for a minute, you may hear a statement today That if you take out of context, you could use to build your life on a false foundation. It's a message that doesn't come easy to me in my personality and in my makeup and in my mindset. But it's a message that needs to be talked about. Because we're going to talk about our security in Christ. Now, I know that there's a theology called eternal security, which basically teaches that once you accept Christ as your Savior, nothing else matters. You are always saved, and I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I believe the Bible teaches that it is possible to walk away from the salvation that we once experienced or had. I do believe that how we live our lives matters. Now... Unfortunately, the problem of Christianity has been ping pong. Yep, ping pong. What we do is we try to correct one extreme by going to the other extreme. And so we correct a legalistic approach of you have to do this and do that and don't do this and don't do that. And somewhere along the way, someone recognized, you know, that's not what serving God is all about. It's not about a a list of rules and regulations and requirements. It's it's about a, a love relationship with God. And so instead of just making small changes to correct it, ping pong. They served back to the other side of the table. And now, once you experience the marvelous, amazing grace of Jesus, what you do doesn't matter. So live however you want. God knows your heart And yet all the time in the word, he says, I'm gonna judge what you do, not what was in your heart. In fact, Jesus taught that what's in your heart actually shows up in what we do. And so what we do is a reflection of what's in our hearts. And so now we have this grace way over here that just says, once you say this sinner's prayer, you are in the kingdom of God and nothing can ever pluck you out of the hand of God ever. Ping pong. And so we go back and forth. And growing up, I grew up on this side over here, where you had to get saved every week. Anyone ever, ever? Do you ever get saved every week? Yep. I mean, if you sinned this week, you had to get resaved because if God comes back and you're in the movie theater, He ain't coming in to get you. And we laughed, but I actually heard that from the pulpit, and it was an error. Absolutely, and, but what happened is we corrected it by serving to the other side of the table instead of living in the middle where we're supposed to. And so today I hope that we don't go to one extreme or the other, but that we find that truth that I believe exists somewhere in the middle because I don't believe the Christian rope or Christian life is a tightrope walk over an area without a net, I don't think that I am in danger of slipping off of my safe and secure place in Christ and falling into eternal hell. While I believe it's possible to walk away from our faith, I don't believe it happens by accident. See, Psalm 125 is the psalm about security. It shows us that God is not trying to send people to hell. It uses geography to illustrate it. If you know much about the, the area of Israel, if you know the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem was set on a saucer of hills. Look at what he says. Those who trust in God are like Zion Mountain. I mean, it's not like a mountain like we know, and y- you know, it's not this huge, towering, rocky mountain, but for that area, it's a mountain. It's pretty firm and immovable. It's not, you're not gonna walk up to it and push it. That's how firm we are in Christ. The rock solid mountain you can always depend on. Mountains encircle Jerusalem. God encircles his people. So, this is a song, it's an analogy showing us how safe and secure we are in Christ. There's a security in Jesus, it's the safest of places. Safer than a city wall, safer than a military fortification. There's nothing safer than the presence of God. And that's what the psalmist is trying to get us to understand. Because in the ancient world, if you lived in a city, you were in danger. If you went outside the city, there were bands of marauders that wanted to attack you and pillage you and plunder you. And they even wanted to come into the city. And so there was danger. And the city had to develop an elaborate defense mechanism. They had to, to build walls to keep these dangers out and to keep people inside safe. There had to be the walls. There had to be moats that they would dig around the walls so that there was even a separation so that you couldn't just come right up to the wall and and use a battering ram, you'd have to swim a great distance. And sometimes, as we've seen in movies, those moats were filled with stuff, animals, creatures, dangers, to keep people from getting in the walls. You and I are no different. We live in a world that we need that same protection from. And just like the ancient cities, we try to build up walls to protect ourselves. We try to have some financial protection, and we try to have some health insurance, and we try to protect ourselves from the dangers that are out there. You didn't know that was back there. But there are germs everywhere. We shake hands and we pray for people. Got to protect ourselves. There you go. Now I'm good. And that's one example, but that's what we do. We try to build our lives. We, as believers, need the same type of protection, the same type of security that the rest of the world needs. The difference for us is we shouldn't be trying to build our own. Because here's the thing, no, no amount of financial security is really ever going to be able to protect you. Is it bad to have a 401k? Is it bad to have a plan financially? No. But if your trust is in that 401k, then when the stock market crashes, when the stock market crashes, you will be like many of those on Wall Street jumping out of windows because they've lost everything. There's a breach in the wall, what do I do? And so it's not wrong to have insurance, it's not wrong to try to protect ourselves, but it's wrong to put our trust in those things. We're told to put our trust in God. And I don't have to live my life carefully looking over my shoulder lest some evil befall me. I am secure in the hands of the one who loves me, who opens a door that no one can shut, and shuts a door that no one can open. I don't have to live my Christian life like this hoping that I don't make one wrong step that he snuffed me out of his kingdom. That's not what the Christian life is all about. There's more security in it than that. Look at what the psalm says. God is a safe place to hide, ready to help when we need him. Mountains encircle Jerusalem and God encircles his people. We studied this one a few weeks ago. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let you stumble. The one who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel never slumbers or sleep. The Lord himself watches over you. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus taught us to pray. Don't let us yield to temptation. Rescue us from the evil one. Keep my feet from stumbling. If I try to do it in my own strength, I'm gonna stumble every single time. I need to ask him to help me to keep my feet from stumbling. The temptation in your life, Paul says, are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful, always has, always will. Remember that from Psalm 125? We just read it. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out if you just shh and look for it. Stop panicking, stop throwing up your arms, stop cursing, stop running around like crazy. Be still and know that I am God. I'll show you the way out. Look what Jesus prayed for his followers. Now I'm departing from the world, he's praying to his father. I mean, he's telling God he's departing from the world. Why? I mean, does God not know that you're departing from the world? Do I need to pray something that God already knows? Apparently, because Jesus did. They are staying in this world, but I'm coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. That's a great prayer that he prayed even before you were born. That's his prayer for you. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. Look what Hebrews chapter seven tells us about him. Because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore he's able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. His purpose right now is to intercede for us. That's what Romans chapter 8, Paul says, Jesus died and was raised to life for us. He didn't do it because he was bored. He did it for us. To demonstrate how much God loves us. Not how worthy we are. He would have never done it if he did it because if we were worthy. We're not worthy He did it to demonstrate his love for us. And now he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. This lie that the enemy perpetuates that God is looking for you to do something wrong. That the Holy Spirit, the hound of heaven, is following you around day by day, pointing out all of the mistakes that you have made. No, He's trying to get you to get out of the prison cell that doesn't have a door. The prison cell of condemnation, the prison cell of guilt, the prison cell of addiction, the prison cell of bitterness and hatred, the prison cell of fear and anxiety. He sets you free. There's no door. You don't have to live in there anymore. And some people are waiting for Jesus to come through the door and get us. But he won't pull you out of the cell. He never acts contrary to our will. He's showing us the open door. It's just up to us to walk through the cell. And so with all of these truths in the Word, you would think we would feel secure. But yet, we're anxious. And we do slip into fearful moods. And we do have uncertainty and insecurity. And where does it come from? What is it that threatens this security that we should have in God? Well, the first thing is our feelings. Our feelings threaten our security in God. We think our feelings are real. They're not. That's not reality. I mean, the feelings that I have are real feelings, but they're not reality. My feelings can be thrown off by anything, the smallest of things, even. The weather can change my mood. What I eat can change my mood. What someone says to me can change my mood. My mood can change my mood. Especially, no, I'm not going to say it. Look how much I've grown. But depression comes, and anxiety comes, and fear comes, and doubts come, sadness come, and gloom come. And those feelings, Psalm 125 says that I'm a rock-solid mountain, and nothing can move it, and yet I'm moved. One day I'm full of faith, and I'm so ready for it, and the next day I am empty and filled with doubt. One day I wake up and I'm full of rejoicing in the sun. And the next day I'm gray and dismal and I'm faltering and moody. That's my feelings. Nothing can move it. Nothing could be less true of me. How about you? I don't feel like that firm mountain. And yet the scriptures say that my feelings don't matter but I use God's mighty weapons. Those scriptures that we just read about Jesus interceding for me, I use it to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and emotions, and I destroy false arguments. I destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God, and I capture rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. What I feel isn't real. The Bible tells us, it compels us to learn from Israel's history. And learn from them, we should. Learn from their mistakes, we should. But there's another thing we should learn. Israel was just like us. One day, they're marching through the Red Sea and they're experiencing victory. The next day, they're in the desert grumbling that they don't have food and water. Remember that? One day, they're marching marching around Jericho, and they're blowing trumpets, and they're shouting, and the walls are coming down, and the next week, they're gathered around a Canaanite shrine having a sexual orgy. Huh? I mean, this is the people of God throughout history. One day, they're in the upper room receiving from Jesus his love and his teaching, and the next day, they're tromping around the courtyard cursing, and they don't even know him. They're denying him. They're just like us. So what do we learn from that? That people never change? No, here's what we learn. All throughout the history of Israel, who are they? They're God's people. They're God's people. Always his people. He's with them steadfastly in mercy and even in judgment. He never abandons them. See, we have to learn to live not by our feelings, but by our facts about God. God is always with us. We have to choose to refuse to believe our depression and choose to believe in God. And it's a choice. Discipleship is a decision to live by what I know about God and not what I feel about God. Not what I feel about myself. Not what I feel about my neighbors. It's what I know about him. The second thing that kind of shipwrecks our security is pain and suffering. Unpleasant things happen to us. Pain comes to those people that we love we conclude that there's no justice, why does God permit this? Anxiety seeps into our hearts. We start to think, you know, if this happened to someone who's good, what's gonna happen to me? I mean, I'm not as good as that person. Why did, why did this happen to them? What's gonna happen to me? And the thing about this psalmist is, the psalmist knows sickness, and the psalmist knows death, and he knows despair, and he knows persecution. How do I know that? Because I know the time in which he lived in Israel's history. He knows what it's like to see rape and pillage from invading armies. He knows what it's like to see the destruction of that which he loves. He knows famine and earthquake and pestilence. He knows it. So how can he be so secure when he's surrounded by all this pain and suffering that's a part of his everyday life? Well, the answer he gives us in Psalm 125. The fist of the wicked will never violate what is due the righteous, provoking wrongful violence. The key word in this statement is the word violate. The word violate means to cancel God's purposes that are being worked out. The fists of the wicked will never cancel God's purposes that are being worked out. Out. It sure looks like there's a prison cell on there. It sure looks like that door is closed, but the one who opens a door that no one can close. I mean, it's almost like, do you ever, do you ever watch a football game and watch the, what the cheerleaders make, that big sign that they make for the football team to run through the tunnel and bust through that sign? I mean, they spend hours making this elaborate sign that's destroyed in like seconds. And it's almost like the enemy has made a paper sign and put it on your cell. And we're sitting there thinking, I'll never be able to bust through that. God, deliver me from this prison cell. And he's like, it's paper. I mean, imagine, imagine a football team standing at the end of the tunnel. Coach, there's a wall at the end of the tunnel. We're afraid. What do we do? No one ever does that. I've yet to see a video. I mean, maybe there's one out there. We should search YouTube. To see a team run into the paper wall and bounce off. That'd be fun. It's never happened. They bust through the paper. And so the enemy, it doesn't say he won't trick you. But he can never violate Never cancel God's purposes that are being worked out. The Bible tells us that evil is temporary. It cannot endure. And you know, people have said, Pastor, I know the Bible says God's always working for my good, but I just can't see it. It doesn't say God is always working for your good and you will be able to see it all the time. It doesn't say that. It just says what is true. And so it shipwrecks our security. The third one that can kind of shipwreck our security is backsliding he talks about the backsliders maybe that's me maybe I'm a backslider am I a backslider I mean I feel like I'm backslidden I've actually had people say I feel like I'm backslidden are you I, I don't know well start pursuing God and then if you are backslidden repent and start moving toward God and then you're no longer backslidden I mean, as if if I'm backslidden, I've got to do some big act to prove. I mean, if you do if you do good deeds on Christmas Eve, they're double. I mean, that's it's a, that's the mentality that we live with. That somehow I, I've got to earn my way back. So, am I once saved, always saved? I mean, does does my does it matter what I do? I mean. If, I'm not, if, I, if my actions don't line up with what God says, am I really saved? Did I ever get saved at all? And the enemy uses these questions and these fears and these insecurities to keep people in a prison of condemnation and guilt. Backsliding is possible. We know about Judas. We know in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander and their faith had been shipwrecked. We're told here in the psalm that there's a a shipwreck that's possible, that there are backsliders that are going to be rounded up. And somehow, on the way of discipleship, when it got difficult, these people saw an easier path and they thought, I'll take that easier path. I don't like this difficult path. And they've defected. And so how do I know if I've defected? How do I know if I've backslidden? How can I live with an assurance of my salvation? The Bible teaches us that all of us wander like sheep. But God is the faithful shepherd who relentlessly pursues us. We zealously believe one day and we gloomily doubt the next day. But God is forever the same. He's faithful. We break our promises, God does not. Discipleship is not a contract. When we break our end of the bargain, it sets God free to break his end. Discipleship, your relationship with God is a covenant that God guarantees to bring to completion. Completion. Now, does that mean that you can never walk away from him? Does that mean that you can never turn your back on faith that you're once saved, always saved? Absolutely no. God did not bring you into the kingdom against your will and he will not keep you against your will. You will deliberately choose to walk away from him. We are warned in scripture to be aware of the deceitfulness of sin. We are warned in scripture to be careful to make sure that we're following after him. But our salvation does not depend on our ability to keep our word my salvation depends on him from start to finish hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says he is the author and the finisher of my faith i'm not backslidden because i feel like i am i'm backslidden because i've chosen to walk in the other direction because i've chosen no longer to conform my will to his It's a choice I make. Now, if you live in sin and disobedience, if you hear the word and you don't put it into practice, can you be deceived? Yes. And you'll live in the cell with the paper door, deceived by the enemy, in a prison of your thoughts and his lies until you recognize the truth of the word and you bust out of that cell. The psalm talks about those who trust in God, not those who trust in their performance, not those who trust in their morals, not those who trust in their righteousness, not those who trust in their health or their doctor or their pastor or the president or the economy or the nation or national security. Our trust is in God. In the recent years, God has been restoring something that Pastor John alluded to called the sonship. Of God the scripture declares we are sons and daughters of God that's our position in Christ you can't earn it you are not a son of God because you are a good person there are no good people only God is good and he proved his love for us by sending his son and if he gave us his son why would he hold anything else back Why would he send his son and then try to trap you and get you to do something wrong? No, his plan for you is to get you out of that. Not to withhold something from you or restrict you in any way. His plan is for you to be free. But the enemy comes in and says, oh, no, 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 no. God is a taker. That fruit is good. He doesn't want you to eat that fruit because if you eat that fruit, your eyes are going to be open and you're going to be like God. He's a taker. He's trying to restrict your fun. He doesn't want you to have sex outside of marriage. He doesn't want you to live with someone outside of marriage. I mean, God, what, why? Why did God ever withhold something from you that is good? Because there is a good that is not good. And it looks good to the eye. But in the end, it leads to death. And the funny thing is, is people get to the end of that road, and then they blame God. <laughs> The logic of all of this. God told you not to touch it, and then when you get to the end of that road and your life is in shambles, you're blaming God who told you not to touch it to begin with. Don't walk down that path. God, I don't understand why my life is in shambles. God's like, "I What exactly would you like me to do?" Doesn't that makes sense? God is restoring sonship. I've got a couple verses that I want to give you to read. And then we're going to pray. In Galatians chapter 5, Christ has truly set us free. Make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. For if you're trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you've been cut off from Christ. You've fallen away from God's grace. But we who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised to us. For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there's no benefit in being circumcised or uncircumcised. What's important is faith expressing itself in love. This false teaching is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough. Right after this passage, he goes on to talk about what the works of the flesh are and what the work of the spirit is. Do our deeds matter? Absolutely. Absolutely because our deeds prove that we've passed from death to life. Our deeds show that God has indeed transformed us and we are aligning our lives with his will. I cannot claim to be led by the spirit and be be overtly practicing what God says is a work of the flesh. It, It shows there has not been a transformation in my heart. It shows that I have not yielded my will to God. It shows that I still want to be the master of my own life. But my performance is not the key to my salvation. My salvation rests in him and in him alone. In Ephesians chapter three, Paul lets us in on his prayer life. And he says this, when I think of all that God has done, I fall to my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. And I pray that from his glorious Unlimited resources. Now, if you could pray from God's glorious unlimited resources, what would you ask for? God, I pray that from your glorious unlimited resources, you'd give these people money. God, from your glorious unlimited resources, I pray that you'd give these people power. God, from your glorious unlimited resources, I pray that you would give these people what? Let's look at what Paul says. I pray that you would give them inner strength through your spirit. What do you need? You need inner strength. What? To recognize that you're in a prison cell with a paper door. To recognize that you already have the power that raised Christ from the dead living in you and you just need to activate it. That you've already been given the power over addiction. That you've already been given life and godliness. And you just need to walk in it. We really just need the inner strength through his spirit. And when we understand that, Christ will make his home in our hearts as we Trust him. Trust him. Not trust. God, look at all the good stuff I've done today. Look at all the ways I've been used. God, I gave a word today in church. You must really like me. No, my love for you never changed. It was the same when you were afraid to step out in faith that it is when you start stepping out in faith. My love is constant when you do what you were supposed to do and when you fail miserably. My love did not change. And Paul says, when Christ starts to make his, his home in our hearts, our roots go down into God's love. And his love keeps us strong. His love keeps us strong. I pray that you'd have power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide and how long and how high and how deep his love is so that you can sit around the table at a coffee shop and reason with your brothers and sisters in Christ how deep is God's love for us. Oh, it's powerful, yes. It's it's a love that we, man, I just, so you could discuss it together or reason it. No, so that you could experience it It's not something just to be reasoned in our hearts. It's something to be experienced in our spirit man that strengthens us and drives us on so that when we fail, we recognize his love for me hasn't changed. I'm gonna get back up and I'm gonna keep moving forward. I'm in this prison cell, but the door is paper. He loves me. He loves me. He's for me. Always has, always will. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Oh my goodness. How many of you, if I would have said at the beginning of this message, you want your life to be complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Every hand in this place would have went up. And it all comes down to whether or not we are rooted and grounded in the experiential love of God. That we are so sure of it. Does that mean that I won't ever feel abandoned? No. When you feel abandoned, you're, when you feel lonely, I don't know the words, you're not alone. One last passage, Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son, the, bad, the naughty son went off, squandered everything, comes home. He returns to his father and while he's still a long way off, his father saw him coming and sat and waited for his son to show up. No, but that's the image we have of God. But the image we get of God is that filled with love and compassion, filled with love and mercy, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And just like us, the sons like father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am not worthy to be your son. And we've got this well-rehearsed speech. I, God, I know, I, I promise this is the last time. I know I keep making this mistake. And he interrupts us. And says, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and his sandals for his feet. He is not my servant, he's my son be my son and some of us live in a prison of slavery we don't want to be sons god i don't i don't deserve your mercy absolutely you never did why do you need to why when you've been set free would you want to be yoked again to the the law of slavery why would you think that you deserved mercy at the cross and now to live out your salvation god should hold you accountable more he should not offer you mercy now He should withhold. Well, because it's a lie from the enemy to keep you in a a cell of your own thoughts. Let's look at the older brother. This This is scary. The older brother was angry. He heard this celebration going on. What is going on? And then he finds out. He's so angry, he won't even go in. A lot of people going to church every week so angry they won't even go in. Claiming to walk in the freedom of God, but sitting in a cell of their own thoughts. His father came out and begged him. Listen to his words, all these years I've slaved for you. He's not a son, he's a slave. Too many people coming into the kingdom of God to be God's slave. He doesn't want you to be his slave. He didn't die to make you a slave. You were already a slave. He died to make you a son and a daughter. And all that time, you never gave me one young goat for a feast with my friends, and then this son of yours come back after squandering your money on prostitutes, And you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father says, son, everything, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate. Remember where Galatians said that this was a poison, a false teaching? This son can't receive mercy. He can't understand it because he deserves something. I have slaved for you. God, I deserve this. My son is sick. How can you make my son sick? How could cancer? How could I get cancer? God, I have, I have served you faithfully. I've been your slave. I have taught Sunday school for 50 years. Anger. Not rooted in the love of God at all. Bound by slave mentality. You owe me. And because he can't receive mercy, he can't give it. So he's angry at his brother. How many people are sitting in church pews today angry at their brothers and sisters in Christ? They call themselves a Christian. Look Look at how they live. Angry at the homosexuals in the world. Angry at politicians. Angry, 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 angry. Right there. See, Pastor Tom, this sermon is so dangerous because you know it could lead to licentiousness, it could lead to, to people just living however, and that you know God's just excusing their behavior. Yeah, it could, it, it absolutely could be that dangerous, it could lead to that. But the opposite of it is just as dangerous and destructive if we do not understand the love that Jesus tried to teach us in Luke chapter 15 and that Paul tried to preach in, in Ephesians chapter 3, we will not understand the fullness and completion of all that God has for us. We won't. We'll just be angry. We'll be angry that God's not living up to his end. We're not seeing it. You know, Moses, as we learned this last week in our all-in study, Noah took 120 years to build the ark. 40,000 some days, 43,000 some odd days to build the ark. You think he ever just got tired of building the ark? You know, as I heard that number, I thought, God, how many times have I complained to you that I'm not seeing the results that I should be seeing? 43,000 days and no results zip until the one day it rained and you know what Noah banked his life on that one day it was going to rain and so my 75 years on earth God I don't deserve anything from you everything I get from you is is mercy and whatever another child of yours gets I I don't care Uh, you're free to do whatever you want with your possessions but thank you for making me your son and I'm banking on the fact that one day it's going to rain and I want to live in your love. I don't want to be bound like this, this son. I don't want to attend church and be a slave. I don't want to teach Sunday school or children's church. Or I don't want to be a slave. I don't want to pastor and be a, a slave. Isaiah was called to, to be a prophet to the nations. And God promised him from the beginning, no one's going to Listen. I told her Sunday school to take class today. I said, isn't that awesome? God said, Isaiah, I want you to be my, a pastor to my people and no one's gonna get saved and no one's gonna change the way they live. <laughs> Please send me to that church, Lord. But Isaiah's like, here I am, send me. You know why? Because he had a vision of God and he understood who God was. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back. I know it's noon right now and I know some of you have other appointments you need to keep. Today as we close service, our prayer is that you would experience the love and security of Christ. Some of you are here today and you're living in a prison of condemnation. You're living by your feelings about God and not the facts about God. You're in the middle of a trial right now, and maybe that older brother, you've even had that conversation with God. God, I don't deserve this. They don't deserve this. And today, you just need a fresh baptism of the love of God. This is not just something to store in our memory banks. If it was, the Apostle Paul would have stopped. When he said, I want you to understand how wide and long and high and deep God's love is, even though you're never going to be able to understand it. I want you to sit around the table in a coffee shop and and bounce it off of each other because it's just, it's so far out there and you're always, it's just, it's a great conversation piece. No, he goes on to say, I want you to experience that love. This love, as James says in James chapter one, we have to receive it, humbly receive it implant it in our soul so it can save us. And some of you just need to experience God's love in a fresh way and in a tangible way. So I wanna invite you to stand with me. The worship team is gonna lead us in a closing song. It's called, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And if you're here today and you would say, you know what, I need just a fresh encounter with God's love. I'm gonna invite you as they sing, as they lead us to find a place at this altar. If you wanna pray alone, Find a place to kneel here in the front. If you want someone to pray with you, we'd love the opportunity to pray with you today, to have that encounter with the love of the Father. Would you stand as you come around this altar? And then we'll know whether you want us to pray with you or whether you just want to spend that time with the Lord. But let's all fix our thoughts on Him and let's begin to thank Him for the love that He has poured out on us that we don't deserve, but He has offered to us so freely as we sing together.